Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We're all in our places with bright, shining faces. Did you ever sing that, that, that song, sitting crisscross applesauce on a little carpet square, surrounded, you know, surrounding your teacher, maybe in preschool or in kindergarten? Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We're all in our places with bright, shining faces. I, that came immediately to mind as I studied the passage this morning. We can actually trace that little song, that little preschool, kindergarten song, back about 120 years to the turn of the 20th century, 19th into 20th century. It was sung in schoolhouses across America. It was sung to encourage prompt attendance. We're all in our places. <laughs> and good personal hygiene with bright, shining faces. The idea that you washed before you came to school. I want to remind you something we learned on Wednesday night, if you didn't hear that study. And by the way, it was a long study. It was about an hour and a half of teaching. But if you did not hear it, you need to go back and listen. You need to move through that section of Scripture. It's powerful. And it needs to be understood. In it, the name of God is proclaimed before Moses, and, and God gives the description of the name, what the name really means, what's inherent in his nature and character, and it's, it's overwhelming. You really need to hear that. But if you were here, you would have heard, and if you weren't, let me just tell you that the Hebrew word for face, that is also translated countenance, it's the same word, it's pane, pane. And pane also means presence. So we talked about how Moses and God spoke, God spoke to Moses face to face as one speaks with his friend. Panaim el panaim is, is the phrase there. Pane is face. And it also means presence. And the Lord said, my presence shall go with you. So it's the same word, pane, it's face. And especially regarding the invisible God, it speaks of presence. See, the face of God is the presence of God. Again, Exodus 33, 14, my presence, my pane shall go with you and I will give you rest, the Lord said. And yet, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, we're told that he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And we talked a little bit about how he could be in unapproachable light and be the one who is unseen and yet speak to Moses face to face. And I'm not going to go back over that right now, but you can hear that if you go back and listen to the midweek study. But this brief Exodus episode before us this morning, and it's very short, just seven verses of an event that has been processed and preached about and talked about many times over the last 3,500 years, and especially the last 2,000 years of the church, this little episode is more than skin deep. More than just the physical sheen on the face of Moses. As a matter of fact, and I just want to get this out of the way, this little anecdote of Moses covering his face has nothing to do with whether we should or should not wear face coverings in this season. Don't use this passage as a proof text one way or the other because you would be taking it out of context. I bring it up lest anyone might miss this is not a story of superficial pigmentation. This is a story of spiritual transformation. A remarkable story 
which is the basis for one of the more remarkable teachings in the Bible. So regardless of where you fall on the face mask issue, ultimately, it's a distraction. It's simply a distraction from the spiritual reality. And by the way, it was a distraction 3,500 years ago. It was a distraction for Moses and the people of Israel, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What was seen on the face of Moses was nothing less than the bright, shining reflection of the immortal God's unapproachable light. Think about that. That is just mind-blowing. Let it sink in. That the unapproachable light left a trace, had an impact, if you will, glowing and reflecting from a human face. It's one of those Amazing moments where the supernatural crosses into the natural and the spiritual into the realm of the physical. As David would write in Psalm 31 verse 16, make your face shine upon your servant and save me in your loving kindness. We see in the Bible five times, actually just in the Psalms alone, five times where David equates the shining face of God upon his servant with salvation. That, that very salvation itself comes when God looks upon his servant. When God looks upon the face of belief in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 tells us, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Which is why we say there is no other way to be saved but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because it is the bright shining face of Jesus that brings our salvation. But, but, but pull back a bit. Some questions arise as we read through these few verses. One of which is, do any other Bible guys get such glowing reviews as Moses? <laughs> and Jesus does, obviously. As we'll note, but what about anybody else in the scriptures? Is there any other story that's similar to this or, or like this? And there may be one. We're not totally sure. We know that Stephen, that servant of the Lord, stood before the Jewish ruling council. Having been falsely acclaimed of blasphemy. And in Acts chapter 6 going into Acts chapter 7 gives this Amazing, remarkable sermon. Talk about a sermon worth going over. Well, Stephen is about to get into it. But it, it tells us that as he stood before this Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they fixed their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, and they saw, Acts chapter 6, verse 15, his face like the face of an angel. Now, it doesn't say glowing. It doesn't say shining. It also doesn't mean that he had four faces, like a cherub, a man, a lion, a bull, an eagle, ah! <laughs> you know. But his face had the look of a messenger of God. Suddenly there was something different about Stephen. Something changed, something utterly unique. So we can assume that something was going on when he had the face like an angel. And we know with Jesus, when he went up on a high mountain, like Moses, to pray, and he took with him Peter and James and John, that Jesus' face became 
quite literally incandescent. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. An amazing view. Mark tells us, Mark chapter 9, verse 3, I like this, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Which reminds me, when Cheryl gets home, my clothes will be much cleaner than they are right now. Luke chapter 9. Verse 30 says, and behold, two men were talking with him up on that mountain as Jesus was transfigured, and they were (laughs) Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Yes, Moses was there, and I wonder if in the conversation at some point, Moses said, hey, I remember that look. I remember that shine. Of course, Moses only reflected the glory. For Jesus, the glory was intrinsic to his nature. Jesus didn't stand on the Mount of Transfiguration. It wasn't called the Mount of Reflection. He didn't stand there reflecting the glory of God off his face. He intrinsically showed the glory of God from his face. For that is who he is. It's just as John would ultimately see him in the Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. His face was shining like the sun in all its strength. John. John witnessed both the transfiguration and the revelation. And it was John who wrote in John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. The light of shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He says in verse 9, there was the true light coming into the world which enlightens every man. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And John would write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message. We have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So understand that the difference between a Stephen or a Moses and Jesus is that their faces, Stephen's face, Moses' face, their faces were changed because of who they saw or who they knew. The face of Jesus shown because of who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Back to Moses, he simply reflected the divine radiance. Or as Old Testament scholar John Currid said, the effulgent splendor of almighty God. I like that. The effulgent splendor. I think if you can find a way this week to work the word effulgent into a sentence sometime in the work week, just freak people out. But this all happened to Moses when he came down the mountain. Look at verse 29. Came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Now, Check this out. Side note here. We've made the point that the Ten Commandments neatly divides into two parts. And we base it off of what Jesus taught 
Matthew 22, 37. Part one is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we see that in the first half of the commandments as the Lord calls for a love of him. Jesus said this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which we see in the last half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. They're all about how we treat each other and how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Boils down to loving God and loving people. So what people do with that, kind of commonly is assumed that the first half of the Ten Commandments was written on one tablet and the second half of the Ten Commandments was written on the other tablet. Two tablets. Half of the commands on each one. Only problem with that is the Bible tells us that the tablets were written on the front and on the back, both sides. So would there be like the first half of the first half on one side and the second half of the first half on the second side? How exactly does that work? Understand, more than likely... The law was duplicated on both tablets. Two tablets because both tablets contained the entire law. One tablet would have the whole law front and back. The other tablet would have the entire law front and back. Why is that? Because that's how we do contracts. Any of you ever gone to get a mortgage or or, or to redo your mortgage and you go into the escrow company and and they give you a a stack of paperwork that you're never going to read? Nobody reads that stuff. We're all being taken. You get this big, thick stack, and you put it in a file and stuff it away somewhere at home, and they have a big, thick stack somewhere else. Now it's all electronic. But the point is, when you enter into a contract with someone, you get a copy and they get a copy. And that's exactly the way it was done in the ancient world. If you entered into covenant with somebody else, you would get a copy of the covenant or scroll, and they would get a copy of the covenant or scroll. And in this case, we have one tablet for Israel and one tablet for the Lord. And both tablets then go into the Ark of the Covenant. Why are they both kept there in the same place? Because that's where the Lord would be, above the mercy seat, there his glory in the midst of of the camp of Israel, one tablet for the Lord, one tablet for Israel, kept right there among all of them because they were there together. Because the Lord's presence would go with them. So Moses comes down, bearing the two tablets, the the new tablets, as it were, now rewritten. He comes down, and his face shone. His face shone. The skin of his face Shown because of his speaking with him, we're told. The word shown is karan, not Quran, karan in the Hebrew, which means dazzling radiance, Ra- literally rays of light. Sometimes, you know, if, you, if you've seen the older uh, Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, all they did with him is just make his beard longer. You know, the implication is being before the Lord ages you. No, (laughs) that's not it. And so we think, oh, well, there was kind of a a glow coming off his face, you know, a shine, as it were. This is much more graphic than that. Think about rays of light emanating from his face. What's interesting here with this word karan, this is far more stunning than, you know, a glow stick. This word 
can be translated another way. It's shown, again, dazzling radiance, rays of light. But have you ever seen medieval paintings or sculptures or artwork of Moses with horns on his head? You ever seen that? Now, if you haven't, Google it. In fact, what you want to look up is specifically Michelangelo's Moses that sits in the Basilica of St. Peter in Chains in Rome. This, this structure, this, this statue, the sculpture of Moses has two big horns on the top of his head. They look like sheep horns or devil horns. I mean, it's very strange. You see that and go, what did they put horns on Moses for? Because Psalm 69 verse 31 says, it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. And the word horns is kahran, same word. It's translated horns, describes horns of a bull. Actually, the literal word right there is makren, but that comes from, it's the verb form of kahran. So it's the, it's the same word. And in the late 4th century, the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Vulgate, and in some ways it was, even used, <laughs> even used the Latin word cornuta, which means horns. So in the Vulgate translation right here, you would come down to Moses did not know that the, that the skin of his face had horns. Cornuta. I mean, the Latin translation could have used something like lux, <laughs> bright, or, or splendico, which would be brilliant. But they use this word horns, and part of that is Jerome's fault, because in Jerome's commentaries, he alluded to the fact, and he painted that picture of Moses with horns of light. Horns of light is one thing. Horns of horn, that's another thing altogether. It wasn't horns popping out of Moses' head. And the better rendering of this word here, karan, that is just translated simply shown in the New American Standard Bible, is rays or beams of light. Light that was beaming off of his face. Speaking of the Lord God, the prophet Habakkuk wrote in chapter 3, verse 3, his splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing, and the word rays there is kahran. It's not that the Lord has horns. No, he has rays of light flashing from him. It says he has rays flashing from his hand. And there is the hiding of his power in his hand. In other words, great power. Light emanating, not horns coming out of his hands, but light emanating from his hands. Karnaim. And all we need to do to really understand what was going on with Moses is go to the New Testament commentary of the Old Testament scriptures where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. These were not horns. This was glory. And it was a glory, Paul says, the Bible tells us in the story with Moses here, that it, it faded. Hey, horns can dull over time. They can even break off. But I've never seen a horn fade. We're talking about glorious light here. Now, you might wonder, and the reason I'm, Spending so much time on the horns issue, 
Maybe you're like, oh, I don't really care about that. It says light, I believe it's light. Okay, good. But the reason we're taking some time on this, you got to ask the question, why would the Holy Spirit use a word, inspire Moses to use a word that could be translated horns? Though the implication, the translation is rays of light, beams of light emanating from Moses' face, why would he use a word that could accidentally, in the Vulgate, or in other translations, someone might say, well, could that be horns? Why would he do that? Let me ask you a question. What had just happened with the people of Israel? Do you recall the prior story to this, why Moses had to go back up to re-receive the Ten Commandments? The sons of Israel had given themselves over to the authority of an idol, a molten calf. Probably like the Egyptian god Apis, which we have seen pictures of and there are archaeological findings of this, this idol called Apis, and it's a young bull with horns. So the people were under the authority, had given themselves to this calf with horns, and now Moses comes down the mount, and rays of light are emanating from his face in horn-like fashion. Well, that's interesting to me. This time down the mount, what we see on Moses, and I'm going to give you three things to jot down about the bright, shining face of Moses. And number one, it was the bright, shining face of authority given. This time down the mount, the Lord is sure that the people will see his authority on his servant Moses. He comes bearing the authority of God, clearly seen even on his face. I'm not saying, again, that he had horns, rays of flashing, brilliant light that made it visibly clear he had come from the presence of God as Yahweh's representative. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. You might say they scattered. <laughs> and Moses called to them. Then Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. Moses spoke to them, and afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And there's even further explanation of all this, of this relationship between the shining light and divine authority, Psalm 132, verse 13, which reads, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. And in verse 17, there, in Zion, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. And the word horn, kahran. I will cause the, is it horn? That, no, it's not, it's not like horns popping out of David's head. So what's the horn of David? It's the authority. That the word kahran speaks of authority. What was on Moses' face was the shining authority of God. So that the people would know this is of the Lord. He has come back from the Lord. And by the way, he says, Psalm 132, 17, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. A horn, a lamp, rays of light. But did you notice that Moses didn't notice, didn't even know that his face was aglow. I find that fascinating. You'd think he'd feel something. 
you know, a little temperature or something. He didn't know his face was aglow. Listen, servants of the Lord rarely do. Servants of the Lord rarely know that they're reflecting the glory of God. This is not only the bright shining face of authority given, it's the bright shining face of service rendered. Service rendered. Which is really truly the balance of godly authority in a follower of Jesus' life that a servant of the Lord doesn't flaunt authority or giftedness or spiritual power. In fact, often, the servant of the Lord doesn't even know, doesn't even recognize that's how they're functioning, that's what they're doing. That they're moving even in the gifts of the Spirit or in the power of the Lord. They're not really even aware of that. They're just serving their God. They're just humbly before the Lord because the servant of the Lord serves under his authority. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8 says when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does this. I know how it works, he says. I get the chain of command. Now when Jesus heard, he marveled. And he said to those who are following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, many will come from east and west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. I get how it works. I'm a man under authority. Hey, the servant of the Lord is one who is under authority, simply serving the Lord, not aware if we're shining or not, because the focus is not on the self, it's on the Lord. That's what the servant of the Lord does. I'm, so I was talking to Cheryl the other day, and you know, I think you all know, but just a reminder, she's in Ghana, in Africa, with our adopted son, Christopher, and we're waiting to try and get them both home now. We've upped the ante a bit now that my wife is there as well. And I was talking with her on the phone, and she, was, she had a rough day. It was a couple days ago, and um, Christopher's older brother, Joseph, came to see them and came in to see her. And she was not feeling well, and she was just down. And Joseph prayed over her. And she said, she said, Rick, I wish you could have heard his prayer. And then she said this. She said, I wish I had his faith. <laughs> I said, Cheryl, you're in Africa. I wish I had your faith. <laughs> I mean, come on. And we had a great conversation about the fact that it's so easy to look at another believer to see a bright, shining moment of faith in their life and to have no idea what you're doing serving the Lord. Obviously, I could dote on my wife. She's the love of my life. But I'm telling you, 
That woman has faith. She just doesn't know it. That is a servant of the Lord, one who serves, who goes, who does, who follows, but doesn't even really know. All they know is they're just doing what, what Jesus asked them to do. It doesn't look like great faith to them. By the way, don't ever compare, compare your faith to other people. Don't do that. A, they're probably comparing their faith to you. <laughs> don't do that. It's not about comparisons. We are servants in the household of God. One serves here, one serves there, one serves over there. Some are under, some are above. We're all serving in roles and positions and places as God has seen fit. That's up to him. And feel free to sing this little light of mine, but don't focus on your radiance. Don't focus on how brightly you are shining in this world. That's not the point. Moses didn't even know. He's just serving the Lord. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we see kind of an epitaph of the life of Moses. And it says in verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Now, if there was a headstone set up, I'm not saying there was, but if there had been, I imagine that's what it would have said. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now, of course, Deuteronomy ends, verse 10, since that time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew pane to pane, face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. But the epitaph is Moses, the servant of the Lord. That's the highest honor. That's the one that matters. So you just serve. Don't worry about how your face looks. Moses didn't even know that his face was aglow. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, Back to the story. In this little seven-verse vignette, it's brief, but what's interesting and the reason why it comes to mind so easily for so many people is that it is ongoing. This is not a singular event. Verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel... What had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses. That the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. This would happen again and again and again. It became the pattern of revelation and radiance and cover up the face. It wasn't the only time. But it was the first time. That's interesting. Why? This was the first time. It didn't happen before. It didn't happen when Moses came out from the burning bush. It didn't happen. And it's interesting, again, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments. Every time Moses goes before the Lord, the beard's just a little bit longer, you know? Until by the end of his life, I think it's all the way down to his ankles. That's not what happened. 
That's not what the Bible describes. There was no change in Moses, no bright shining glow, no change to his face at the burning bush or during the plagues of Egypt, not at the Red Sea, not when water gushed from the rock, not when manna appeared from the heavens, not even when he came down the mount with the first set of tablets. He just looked like Moses then. In fact, his face didn't shine or glow except maybe from sweat. Any of the previous five times that he came down from Mount Sinai having been with the Lord. Just this time and then every time after. His face didn't radiate rays of light until he came down with the second set of tablets. Why now? Because this time, listen, this time Moses had asked, show me your glory. He had never had the boldness to make that request before. This time he said, show me your glory. And you remember what happened. He saw God's glory trailing off. This is number three. Not only the bright shining face of authority given, not the bright shining face of services rendered, although it was, this is also the bright shining face of glory beheld. Because in this event this experience going up the mountain before the Lord Moses saw what he had never seen before and it changed him and by the way in seeing what he had never seen before now when he came before the Lord he would see this every time how do you know because his face would glow every time it was on this trip up the mount Moses was allowed to see the back of God's glory and all his goodness Even as he heard God proclaim the very nature of his name, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Absolutely stunning. He's there in the cleft, or what we saw Wednesday, the piercing of the rock, covered by the hand of God until God passes by, declaring the glory, the splendor of his name, and he removes his hand, and Moses gets to see that glory of God, the goodness of God as it passes before him, the glory trailing off, and it changes Moses. The light of his glory completely washes out any human view of glory on this earth. In fact, our glory pales in any comparison. God's glory. You know what God's glory is? It's all goodness, all compassion, graciousness, forbearance, grace, truth, forgiveness, and yes, righteous judgment. The glory of God. And when we begin to see God for who he really is, it not only changes how we see things, that is our perspective or our outlook, But when we see God for who he is, it changes our countenance. Psalm 34, verse 5, David wrote, they, being those who seek the Lord, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. Maybe that's why Stephen, 
was described as having the face of an angel. Because angels are always in the presence of God. Angels are always there before God. And so there's a, a look about them because of his presence. There was a look about Stephen because of his focus on the Lord. A countenance changed. And maybe you've seen it in people. There's a different look. Well, man, how do I get that countenance? That's a great question. But before we answer it, there's one more question I have to ask. In the visage of Moses, again, as we see that bright, shining face of authority given and, and the servant rendered and glory beheld, why did he keep wearing the veil? Why did he keep putting it on? I understand the first time. The first time they saw him, Aaron and the people ran like frightened chickens. I mean, they scattered. Moses had to call them back because they saw him coming down the mountain. It was like, ha, oh, oh, ha, oh, ha, and off they ran. I understand this. So he put the veil on. He spoke, called them back, spoke to them, and put the veil on because it was just freaking them out. Moses, man. Why did he put the veil on the rest of the time? Why did he keep doing it? You'd think the people would have gotten used to it. Oh, he's just been in with the Lord. Lit up. He's just been talking with God. So, of course. You'd think they would understand that every time he came out with a word from the Lord, he took off the veil to speak to them. You'd think they would get used to it and it would be okay. It was never okay. Why did he, did he continue to wear the veil? Why put it on the rest of the time? And the Hebrew scriptures don't tell us why. Just tells us he did. Moses would replace the veil, verse 35, over his face until he went in to speak with him. Every time. And then he'd come out, share with the people what he had heard, and put the veil back on. This was an ongoing thing. Why did he do it? Some have surmised that it was modest humility. That the reason he covered his face with a veil was in public... Moses didn't want to flaunt the brightness as he finally became aware that there was something going on. So it was only in prayer or during divine proclamation that he removed the veil. In public it was on, in prayer it was off. In proclaiming the word of God, it was off. And so modest humility, that, that's definitely a possibility. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 tells us, the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. It's kind of funny because Moses wrote that. <laughs> I can't wait to write my autobiography. Say all kinds of things about yourself. You know, actually, with Numbers 12, verse 3, I'll just say this. It does say he was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. And Moses did write numbers but I'm thinking my guess Joshua inserted that either that or, or the Lord said Moses I want you to write that Moses said you've got to be kidding he's like no write it okay Lord and he wrote it under duress <laughs> but Moses was humble he was unaware of the glory he simply was a servant of the Lord but we don't hear specifically why he put the veil on we can only make a guess in the Hebrew scriptures. But we learn finally, thanks to Paul's commentary, why he continued to wear the veil in the New Testament scriptures. And it's because the light of the glory kept fading away. 
Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. I'm going to let Paul do most of the rest of the teaching this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And you know Paul can preach all night long. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's writing to Corinth with some degree of frustration because they are rebelling against his authority. They're disobeying him as, as a leader. God established. It's funny because it's happened for 2,000 years of the church that God puts people in places of leadership and people rebel against that. And they were doing so with Paul. So it's not a new thing. And Paul is trying to get them to understand what he's teaching them because it's not about Paul. In fact, Paul was a bright, shining example of a servant of the Lord, trying to help them to understand the word of the Lord, which was not from Paul, but was from the Lord. And verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Which, by the way, they would do that. They would get a commendation letter if, if someone was going to be sent from one church to another church in another town, and that person wasn't known where they're going the church would write a letter. Hey, we approve of this guy, and he is coming with a, a good word from the Lord, and he would take the letter and present it when he arrived at the new church. Paul planted the church at Corinth. Paul and the teaching through the apostle was the reason that church even existed, and so he said, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, and note this, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, you got to understand, this is not like the old covenant of Moses. You know, twin tablets bearing a contractual responsibility of both parties in the covenant. No, this is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. A one-way, unconditional covenant of grace written on the tablet of the heart, written by Jesus. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as from ourselves, but our adequacy, he says, is from God who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Remember what happened when Moses came down with the first set of the tablets of the covenant. Remember what happened? 3,000 people died that day. And remember on the inauguration day of the church at Shavuot, Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved that day. One kills, one gives life. The picture is graphic. And our, our authority, brothers and sisters, listen, in Jesus, our authority should we have any? Our service, should we render any? Even our glory, should there be any, simply radiates from him. That's what Paul's saying here. Our adequacy comes from him. Paul's saying, my, my, you know, my authority to send this letter off to you, my right to start that church in the first place, my involvement with you, that's because of him. It's not because of me doesn't come from Paul. It's not from a law which kills. It's from the Spirit who gives life. 
John Bunyan wrote, to run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly. It gives us wings. Our adequacy is not from ourselves, but it's from God. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Even more so. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Now note this, verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains in glory. In glory. What are you saying, Paul? That which fades away, it fades away because it was with glory. That is, Moses was near glory, God's presence. But the mo get this, the moment that Moses left the presence of God, the glory began to fade. And with every moment he was away from the presence of God, the glory would fade and fade and fade and fade. And that's what Moses was covering. Now hold the thought. By contrast, what Paul says to you and to me today is that which remains in glory, in the presence of glory, in other words, infused and permeated and saturated by glory, this is a glory that does not fade away. This is the big difference here, that Moses, Moses reflected the glory of God because he had been with God, but then he left presence to come before the people, and the glory began to fade. Guess what, brothers and sisters, you don't leave presence. We don't leave the presence of God when we walk out the front door of the church. We don't leave the presence of God when we depart the midweek Bible study or the small group. Or when we say amen and finish our morning prayers. We don't leave the presence of God when we close the Bible after studying at home on our own. Or when we've been talking with a friend about Jesus. We don't turn to other things and leave the presence, thus having the glory fade. No, we remain because he remains. Always with us. I will abide with you, Jesus says. The Father and I will come make our home with you always always there, we are in the presence of glory 24-7, we never fade. And in fact, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and note this, will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul keeps going. He doesn't stop there. Verse 12, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in speech. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end 
of what was fading away. Hmm. Why did Moses keep putting on the veil? Now we knew. He didn't want them to see the glory fade. Now, don't, don't look down on Moses for this because there's another reason. But let me just ask you, are you that way? I had to deal with myself in this. Am I that way? We're all in our places with bright shining faces. Just don't show up, my, up at my door tomorrow. Face ain't going to be shining. It's going to be hanging about five feet below me. We don't want anyone to see us outside of that place where we're aware of presence. Hey, when I'm with you and when I'm with the Lord and we're worshiping together, <laughs> it'll look really good. If you disagree, well, you know, tough on you. I, I look, this is as good as I ever look, spiritually. We don't want people to see us in our failure. We don't want people to see us in our darkness. We don't want people to see us in our doubt or our despair or our faithlessness or our humility. So we mask up so people don't see what's really going on with us. That was not, by the way, an allusion to wearing masks because of a disease. We wear masks all the time. In fact, before this season came upon us, we all have been very good at wearing masks. We depart what we think. This is very human. It's very natural man, natural woman. We depart what we think is the presence of glory. And out there, man, we got to put up a mask, a shield, some kind of covering. And like Moses, we don't want people to see the glory fade off. I get five miles down the road, someone cuts me off, and I lose it, then the glory fades. I don't want people to see that. I don't want anyone to know what we all already know, and that is that I can't keep it glowing. I cannot maintain the glow. It's not in me. Moses couldn't keep it from fading. When I'm here, again, in corporate worship and Bible study and Christian fellowship, we've even used the phrase, I get recharged. But every day that passes, my battery just wears out. I need a recharge. And you know what kind of thinking that is? That is law thinking. That's what it's like to live under the law. You do what's right, you got to glow. But the moment you do what's wrong, the glow fades. You need a battery recharge, so you go back to the law again and try to study it and try to emulate it in your life. But you can't do it in the glory fades. Now, by the way, I don't think that was Moses' attitude at all. I don't think Moses was afraid that they were going to find out that he wasn't all that in a bag of chips. I think Moses, who was more humble than any man on the earth, Moses, listen, Moses did not want them to focus on a glory that fades away. The humble servant wanted them to focus on the glory that remained, the glory that was there in their midst, the unfading glory of God. Don't look at my face. Look to his presence. 
And that, I believe, was the heart of Moses. But the law gets in the way because the law, with its requirements and stipulations, must be followed. And the law shows us I can't follow the law, and my glory fades. My glory. I think Moses would say to you and to me this morning, but his glory never fades. Never fades. Verse 14. Paul says, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, that is Torah, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away in Jesus brothers and sisters not only is the veil removed from the face or from the heart it's torn in two from top to bottom as in the temple the veil is gone it has no power it has no place in the new covenant in verse 17 he says now the Lord is the spirit by the way note that note that the Lord is the Spirit. That is one of the Bible's most direct identifications of the nature of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? Third person on the totem pole of the Trinity? No. A vague generic force in the world given by God? No. Who is the Spirit? The Lord is the Spirit, Paul says. Yahweh is the Spirit. Rick, haven't you said that Yahweh is Jesus? Yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal. All one with distinct roles within the Godhead. The Lord is, he says, the Spirit. Paul is absolutely clear. And he says, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. Liberty. It's not an out-of-place verse. Freedom from the law, freedom from the veil, freedom from trying to prove or show or be anything other than who I am in Christ. Which from my perspective is a bondservant, but from his perspective is a son. I just serve him in the household, and I'm thankful to do it. He sees me as a child of his own. Liberty, freedom in, in Jesus. We are not bound by the things of this world. On April 18th, 1864, Abraham Lincoln said, the world has never had a good definition of the word liberty. I'm speaking at like great moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland. <laughs> and the American people, he said, just now are in much want of one. That is a definition of liberty. How prophetic a word was that? The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, and the American people just now, 2020, are much in want of one. We need to know what liberty is. We don't understand. We have forgotten what freedom really is. You know what? Lincoln was right. We're in want of a definition, but he was wrong in the fact that the world has never had a good definition. I submit to you, it is right here that the Lord is liberty. That where the spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. Freedom defined. And it's not a freedom to do whatever I want. It's not a freedom to sin. It is a freedom from sin. It is a freedom from guilt. It is a freedom from the bondage of the flesh. 
And where the Lord is, the spirit of the Lord, man, there's freedom. There's liberty, verse 18. And Paul said, but we all, and here's the encouragement, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Listen, get this, understand, I've pointed this out a few times recently because it has been, I think, taught wrong. And I'm not saying that Rick is right, but I have heard it taught that it's glory by degree. We are being, he says, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That is step by step, bit by bit, rung by rung, piecemeal by piecemeal change as if we level up in a video game. I am being changed from glory to glory. The glory is his. The glory is never mine, never yours. It's his glory. His glory is changing me. It's coming from him and returning me to him. From glory to glory. The glory is not ours. You see, with unveiled face, Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, behold. That's where the change is. We behold. We radiate Christ as we behold Christ. His glory on us and in us and through us, and his glory then is transforming us. And here's the practicality of it. What do I do with this? Uh, What am I supposed to do then? Yield. Yield to Jesus. He'll transform you. Your job is not the job of transformation. Your job is not to change yourself into the Christian you ought to be. That's law thinking. And that glory will fade. The glory that remains is the transformation of Christ. Philippians 3.20, Paul said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He does the transforming. His glory changes us. We just submit. We just keep our eyes on Jesus. We behold him. And so the only veil, honestly, the only veil with which we need to be concerned is the veil of unbelief. Because that is a veil that will kill. Look down in chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see this whole comparison to Moses seeing God in the light and now Paul says it's the face of Christ upon whom we fix our eyes, who we behold. And tragically, tragically the sons of Israel did get used to the glow of Moses. How do you know? Because they became blinded by their own unbelief. We will see over and over. The only hope is Jesus. The same thing, the same thing is true today. And that is people are blinded by unbelief. 
that if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't receive Jesus, therefore you cannot be saved by Jesus. You must believe in him. You must behold him by faith to be saved. And so Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 4, for we do not preach ourselves, <laughs> but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, let there be light, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. Do you have that knowledge? Do you have that knowledge? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the very image of God? Then guess what? Whether you realize it or not, you are being transformed by his glory. That thrills me. I, I, we're being transformed by the glory of God simply because we keep our eyes on him. Simply because we know that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory. We look to Jesus and he does the changing. And I might not even see it. I might be completely unaware of it. But that bright shining glory is getting all over me. And my friends, it is not fading. It is increasing from glory to glory. We are being transformed. And I can see the day when we will gather around Jesus, crisscross applesauce on our little kindergarten mat singing, we're all in our places with bright shining faces. Let's stand up together. It is such an encouraging word. The change that's taking place it's not a change that I work for and labor over and stress and strive in. No, it's a change that he is doing. And he's called me simply to yield, to submit to him, to trust and to believe him. And it gives such profoundness, I believe, to, again, the ironic blessing. I'll read it to you again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. The Lord lift up his face on you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, even as we behold you right now in faith, you are transforming us. You are changing us. You are increasing, ever increasing, your glory in us. Father, help us to understand it is not so that we could be bright, shining lights in this world. Not so that we could be impressive, walking around with some kind of supernatural glow. But you are glorifying us to that day when we will be perfect in Christ Jesus, complete in the day of Christ, ready to go when you call. And then in that moment, absolutely, unequivocally changed, 100%, as even these mortal bodies put on immortality. 
Jesus, if, if we had to figure out how to do this, we would all quit. We'd give up, we would walk out discouraged, or we would be incredibly proud, self-righteous people who don't know how simple we really are. But because you are at work sanctifying and transforming us by your great power and grace, Lord, we can rest. And we do, we rest in the awareness that you are the great transformer. We, as your word says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author, the originator of our faith and the one who finishes it. And Lord, there's freedom in that. Oh, there's liberty. Thank you for making us free in Christ. Thank you for lifting the veil of unbelief. Thank you, Lord, for removing the law and its requirements of death and replacing it with your loving kindness, your great grace. We are nothing but thankful here before you this morning. And we praise your name for all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.